This week on This Week in Blurns Ball, Japan is back! Union squabbling! Every emotion conceivable! Let the earth quake! I have somebody's Oscar! Welcome to This Week in Blurns Ball, where the big brain am winning again. I am the greatest. And now before I leave Earth for no reason, let's record a podcast. I'm Benjamin Bloom. With me, as always, is the cracking up Jacob Morris. What the, what the great thing is, is that's the episode I have picked for this week. You bastard, that's what I picked. <laughs> okay, so the rule is now we both have to go find different episodes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, this is what happens when you do live-to-tape podcast recording with zero prep time. You get surprised by shit like this. Oh man, that's a terrific episode. That is a terrific uh-huh. episode, though. So for those of you who are curious what the hell we're talking about, go watch The Day the Earth Stood Stupid. Um, One of the great Futurama episodes with some great lines like, is there Mrs. Queequeg? And, ow, fire hot. The professor will help. Ah, fire indeed hot. Oh, man, that was that was a classic, classic episode. I'm not sure if it's my favorite episode but it is definitely up there oh absolutely i mean it has the brain spawn it has fry being like it has peak fry i mean there's a lot to love about this episode yeah there is okay so i definitely have my other episode but i will save it until the end of the show (laughs) that is good to know and in the meantime we actually do have some baseball news to talk about, so let's talk about that as I slowly browse the internet. Yes, so Japan baseball is coming back. Uh, the NPB, the Nippon Professional Baseball League, uh, I love that name, is coming back in the middle of June to play its regular season, which will, of course, be abbreviated. Uh, so generally regarded as the second best baseball league in the world, uh, behind MLB, of course is coming back to play real baseball. Hooray, real baseball. Woo, baseball. And, I mean, like, for us, like, it was quick buy-in for the KBO because it's baseball. They have some great team names, and, you know, Korea is awesome. But, like you said, like, NPB is generally recognized as the next best Pro baseball league on the planet. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of the KBO, our team SK Wyvern stinks. They have not <laughs> been doing well this season. 
Of of course they haven't. That's because we picked them. And it's so bad because last year they were the runners-up. Typical Wyverns. Typical Wyverns. But why, Vern? (laughs) Vern, 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 Vern. This is not a Jim Varney podcast. We've been over this. Yes, so KBO is... No, KBO is back. NPB is coming back. We'll have essentially top flight baseball back in Asia. Of course, they'll be operating under many of the same restrictions that KBO is operating under and MLB is talking about operating under. No fans in the stands, uh, limited contact between players off the field, etc., etc. But it's baseball, and it's top flight baseball. And... You know, hopefully one of the Canadian networks ends up picking it up. I mean, like, all due deference to Derek Geisterspiel, I've had enough of German soccer, so I would love to see, you know, like, TSN, who I believe is going to be bringing in KBO, like, do something with NPB or even Sportsnet, like, share the wealth. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, more baseball is always a good thing. And what I do wish, though, is that there was some Major League Baseball news other than union politicking. Well, union politicking is what the news is right now. And there was the back and forth last week about, well, we don't love these rules, so here's another option to these rules, which the ownership seemed to be okay with, but... We're really stuck in that rut of, are they going to be okay with the money split? And, I mean, at this point, you like it's the classic millionaires fighting billionaires polemic. Like, who do you side with in all this? But it seems like the most Major League Baseball thing to have an opportunity to come back and, you know, botch it over money. Yeah, seems pretty MLB to me. And it's it's such a thing where there has been so much distrust between the players and the owners for so many years now that, of course, something like this was going to be ruined by distrust between players and ownership. Uh, but Tom Lavin said something really insightful this week where he said, if something happens and they don't end up playing, regardless of whose fault it is, the public is going to end up blaming the players because there's this perception that the owners have worked hard to get this money, regardless of whether or not they've inherited it, and the players are these dumb jocks who are making millions of dollars to play a game. And that in itself is unfair because the players, as we've seen in many of the movies we've talked about, work incredibly hard and go through their own trials and tribulations to even have a chance to maybe earn a decent amount of money. It's only the top tier that makes the crazy dollars. Like it's, yeah, it's weird. Cause you know, we are cheering for laundry <laughs> at the end of the day, like as Jerry Seinfeld says, like, so our natural default is to go with organizations, which does a disservice to the players themselves. Yeah, it does. Uh, Now, what's really interesting is the breakdown between how the players' union will end up breaking this down, because there's a huge disparity in wealth of the players. 
Uh, there's your quad A guys who really just want to get in and get a chance, and they don't make very much money, especially if they aren't playing in the bigs or they're fringy. And then, of course, there's your Mike Trouts, your Steven Strasburgs, who make a ton of money, and, of course, their primary interest is in winning. And then there's the guys like your Nelson Cruzes, who have made a ton of money, and they're on a great team. And the question is, how many more years do I have left? And you think about that. It's like, does the pandemic cut careers short, or does it, you know, give, like, an, give an extra, you know, like, give an extra life to... You know, some of these guys who maybe like they're on they're in their age thirty nine year, maybe they play an extra two years instead of this year and then one more year. I mean, like there's the wear and tear and then there's also just general human aging. Yeah. Uh you you don't really know. And especially if they play a shortened season or they don't play a season, uh you can't really tell what ends up happening with these guys. And you know, uh a Nelson Cruz type guy, he's playing on Minnesota, uh, and I'm taking him as an example because I saw him used as an example in a Sportsnet piece the other day. Uh, if if they're set up to win right now, if he wins and goes out on top, I think he's done. How many more chances to win is a guy like Nelson Cruz going to get? No, that's an excellent point. And, yeah, like the, the big thing about all of this is, you know, player safety. And, you know, I was reading, you know, like what what are the acceptable lengths that the players will have to put themselves through just to be ready for a shortened season with a fraction of the pay. And from that perspective, it's like, okay, if they're going through like testing that's even more rigorous than some frontline doctors, then you're like, okay, there's gotta be some type of, you know, compensation in that regard because you know, testing, like, the, they're not talking about, you know, like, just doing, like, a temperature check. They're doing the full nasal insertion, scrub the brain type of deal. Yeah. By the yeah. way, for those of you who are medical doctors, that is absolutely how it works. Yeah, and it's incredibly invasive. And if we're talking about doing that multiple times in a week to every single player in the league, that's also incredibly costly. And considering that there's a lot of states that don't have enough tests to get them to the people that need to be tested, are we really talking about prioritizing Major League Baseball players for tests so that they can come back and entertain us? And that's where you sort of see the maybe, like, losing a season will hurt everyone, but you don't take away, you know, like, important medical equipment from people who need it more. It's it becomes like a real head scratcher. Now hold on, are 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 us two man children really saying it's okay if we lose a season? Somehow I think we are. What what is wrong with us? Oh man, we're thinking like adults again. This this is weird. I don't like this look on us, man. It's it's not very. It's, it's not a good look. Let's let's be real. No, it's really not. So let's talk about something about baseball rules instead. Uh, so yeah. it has been settled that if there's a season this year, there will be universal designated hitter, uh, which has been something that's been debated for a long time, and there's been National League holdouts on the basis of, well, you know, it's the tradition of the game, but this might be the forebearer of there will be a universal designated hitter in the future. Uh, and what do you think about that? 
I have no problem with having, you know, universal DH. I mean, maybe because one of my favorite players of all time is a designated hitter in David Ortiz. I'm sort of spoiled in that regard. But even, like, the flexibility that it gives lineups and the potential for more offensive output. And, I mean, what I will miss, though, is, like, the National League quirk of all the crazy double switches. Yeah. And it sort of takes away from the... Was it Tony La Russa who would bat his pitcher eighth? Yeah, Tony La Russa used to bat the pitcher eighth, and then you'd end up with the wild double switches because of that. Um, And it takes away some of the National League quirks. But I think you're right. It ends up with a better game. And Joe Siddle, of all people, made a really good point here. It actually makes you have to be a better manager if you're managing in the American League. Because if you're in a close game, you're getting into the 6th or 7th inning, and the pitcher's coming up, well, you've got to remove the pitcher, because you need that extra run. In the American League, it's the question of, okay, when do I take him out? He's pitching well, but does he have enough left in his arm? Is he going to keep us in this close game, or is he going to let the other team in? When do I go to the bullpen? When do I pull that hook? That mound of pudding said that? Yeah, right? I would... It's one of those, if you say enough stuff, eventually you hit on a nugget of gold. No kidding. Oh, my God. I mean, all due respect, he seems like a nice mound of pudding, but wow. Yeah, I mean, that's something you don't really think about until it's presented right in front of you. I mean, like your default would be like, oh, it's so much harder when you have to deal with, oh, great, I have to, you know, like, like have a pitcher hitting. But really, like, the pitcher's ultimate, like, like priority is their mound performance. So you would, like, I'd rather have, you know, like, a pitcher come up, you know, take a couple hack swings, but get me through one more inning. Like, it's not good on mound of pudding. <laughs> yeah, uh, very good on him. And also, it means that if we're having a universal DH, uh, we're going to see guys like Max Scherzer, like Steven Strasburg, pitch deeper into games, and that's better for baseball. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So I think it's something that we, you know, because we're in the midst of it, we kind of say, oh, it's fun that there's the weird quirk of the two different sets of rules. But as soon as it's changed and everybody gets used to it, we're going to say, man, I can't believe we fought over that at any time in the past. Seriously. And, like, there's no other professional sport that does the whole one conference plays by one set of rules and the other one plays by another. I mean, that's one thing that's great about Major League Baseball. It's one thing that's confusing about Major League Baseball. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine if the NFL, the AFC played by one set of rules and the NFC played by, you know, Canadian rules? That'd be nuts. That would be amazing, to be honest. That would be awesome, but it would be crazy. (laughs) Or... there is precedent because the AFL was a different league than the NFL, so they could have, they could have. But then again, Pete Rozelle was the world's greatest unknown mafia boss, so that never happened. <laughs> yeah, well, that's specifically why I said it. They're the one league that isn't geographically divided. I mean, the NHL and the NBA would be what in the Western Conference versus the Eastern Conference. Man, yeah, on Western time we have different rules. <laughs> just like shootouts in the middle of like the court, you know, like 
you must wear a like floor length duster. <laughs> LeBron in a floor length duster. I just got that image and it's awesome. Right? Yeah. Okay, so we need to have that in the NBA now as soon as they come back. Western Conference teams wear floor length dusters and gun belts. As is tradition. As is Western tradition, of course. Uh, and it's tradition in Western movies, which none of which are on our uh, film bracket, of course, because there are no Western baseball movies. How awesome be, would that be? Billy the Kid yeah. meets Mr. 3000? Oh, my God. That would, or even, you know, dances with infield flies. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. And that has a logical character crossover, too. Absolutely. I mean, like, who says that Kevin Costner didn't found the Church of Baseball while living with the Sioux? Look, we have the to. Lakota. I think Either it was one. the Lakota. But anyway, yeah. look, there has to be a unified theory of Kevin Costner movies where they all take place in one universe. I think it's certainly possible if, well, that means that Waterworld gets included as well. Are we okay with that? Waterworld, uh, <laughs> Waterworld is a movie that people inside the Kevin Costner film universe watched and liked. Because not everything can be perfect in that universe. But what about The Postman? The Postman is the apocalyptic future of the Kevin Costner universe. I accept that. And, of course, in this universe, Whitney Houston is still alive. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Kevin Costner saved her. Duh. Yeah. And so is Tom Petty. Oh, shit. That's awesome. Man, the Kevin Costner-verse seems like the best place to live. As opposed to our darkest timeline. Which we're living in right now, and further segueing into our lone remaining non-Costner Elite Eight matchup. Yeah, so we have The Natural, A Tale of the Christ, against Pride of the Yankees, a story about Yankee pride. <laughs> so we're actually pitting these two movies against each other, two of the most tear-jerking movies in sports history. That is what it has come down to. And we'll deal with no crying in baseball at another time, because today there is crying about baseball. <laughs> oh, there's crying about baseball all the time. There's no crying in baseball. Yeah, that is true. I, I suppose Jimmy Dugan was on to something. Yes, yes, he was. Uh, having just this brief segue, having gone back and watched that movie, I think that there is going to be a real battle next week. Right? Yeah. It, it showed up on my algorithm as well, and just... People are going to be furious. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. But that's not what we're talking about this week. This week, we've got The nope. Natural <laughs> against Pride of the Yankees. Oof. Oof. This is a battle. Uh, and it's crazy, because... Like... Both of these movies have incredible elements of light and dark. And yeah. you can't put them as, you know, like an up, one as an uplifting movie and one as like a tragedy 
and not include the other in the other because you know Pride of the Yankees it's it's Lou Gehrig you kind of know what's going to happen to the poor guy yeah uh, and in the natural, even though it ends with the phenomenal over-the-top uh, winning scene, although that's not how the book ends, uh, yes. <laughs> the book is depressing at the end, but the movie, you get a good ending. Yeah. Uh, the movie, you end up with a terrific film ending, but there are some really dark and depressing moments within the movie, too. Yeah, I mean, Roy Hobbs really goes through the ringer in this movie and that's after he gets gut shot in the opening act yeah i mean he's gut shot within the first 20 minutes of the movie and then he keeps getting beat down on uh this this is not a guy who had a fun time getting to be the natural yeah like maybe he's natural at getting his ass handed to him like like he goes, like he goes on, like he goes in a hitting slump. He like gets pushed aside by, you know, like the star outfielder. There's death literally all around him. I mean, can we talk about how he gets a spot in the starting lineup because a guy dies? And if they just like, oh, oh, I'll put it a memorial patch on the jersey. See, yeah, <laughs> like, at, and that's it. It's played almost for laughs. He runs through the outfield wall, and then he's dead, and then they're like, well, we'll keep playing. Yeah, oh, well, well, Hobbs, you're in. It's like, Wilford Brimley's like, all right, we'll put him in now. <laughs> yeah, that that is just a really dark turn. It's This movie has a lot of dark turns. I mean, just like the story of Jesus. <laughs> well, like we said... It's a story of Jesus. If Jesus played pro baseball. We actually had a song uh, in college about how Jesus couldn't play rugby, but I won't go into that. Please, please go into that. (laughs) But we're getting back to the movie itself. I mean, Robert Duvall, his whole, like, angle is disproving the natural. It's like, who is this guy really? Like, trying to, like, like, he plays the journalist who's, like, trying to, like, to have that gotcha moment with like, you're not who you say you are, or you were that guy. Like, and that in itself, like that hounds, that hounds Roy Hobbs, the whole movie. Yeah, exactly. It's, you aren't what you're saying you are. It's you, he's trying to disprove him. It's, it's, if we're going to go back to the Jesus metaphor, it's the zealot at the temple. They really go full Jesus on this movie. They really eh? do. Are you who you say you are, Christ? Are you who you say you are, Roy Hobbs? It's it is a very Jesusy movie. Yeah, and then even even the bullet that they, is removed later on in the movie, it's like you can't keep doing this. You are going to die if you keep playing baseball. Like, and it, it's crazy that you know, like the. Death and baseball, like, are so present in both of these movies. Like, like Lou Gehrig played until he couldn't physically play anymore. Yeah, and that's part of what the thing is with Pride of the Yankees, is it starts as this uplifting story about this kid who starts from nothing and becomes this terrific all-world baseball player, and then it all gets taken away from him by this awful, debilitating disease that, you know, gets named after him, at least. 
yeah, that's not any comfort. No, it's not really. But, you know, if you get a disease named after you, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's crazy that if you look at when this movie was made, it was made just a year after he died. So this is, like, pretty fresh in a lot of people's memories. So for the sake of context, you're like, this guy literally just died. And it's like he had such, like, a a hold on people's imaginations in pop culture that, you know, you go right away to – you know, like, memorializing him in in film, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, he was a lion. He was huge. And there's there's no denying that Lou Gehrig was that big of a deal. Uh, Could you imagine if they made a movie about any other baseball player a year after they retired? I mean, retired due to death is a little bit different, but... I can't imagine them making, like, the Jose Fernandez story. I mean, his death was under a little bit of different circumstances, given. But still, uh, he he occupied a huge place in the American culture at the time. Yeah, like, the only parallel I can even think of just off the top of my head is, it's not even a sports thing. It's like, what if they made a Gord Downey movie in, like, 2018? Yeah, that's... Maybe if they had, like, a Thurman Munson movie... Yeah, I mean, like, like, I, I, I don't know, like, if a Bill Barilko movie would have as much of an impact right after his death. I mean, yeah, this it, it's horrible to think about, like, like all of these like athletes who have died. Like, I guess a FloJo movie would have been something. That would have been something, but again, yeah. it's it's really who do you make a movie about? Who do you make a movie about right after their death? For a lot of it, it's you kind of look at it and you go, oh, that's morbid. You let it sink it, it, in yeah, for a like, while. Yeah, I mean, like, like a Howie Morenz movie? Like, like maybe in Montreal, but... Yeah, and that he was such a big deal that this was not even questioned and made and a critical darling that we're still talking about it today. And it has one of, like, the most famous lines in simultaneous sports and movie history to close it out. And, like, you got to give credit to Gary Cooper for absolutely nailing, you know, Gary's cadence and emotion. Like, like how many people think of the Gary Cooper scene more than the actual Lou Gehrig recording? I mean, I, for one, didn't realize that when I was thinking of it, I was thinking of the Gary Cooper scene, because that one is so much better known. And, to be fair, a little bit better captured than the Gehrig one at the actual Yankee Stadium on Lou Gehrig Day. Uh, Finding that out, I was shocked. I thought for sure that was actually Lou Gehrig. But, no, that was Gary Cooper. And it's crazy how much reality and film like overlap. Like this is this is taking place like 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 more than fifty years before we were even born. Like this is and and the fact that it has still has a hold on us as baseball fans. I think if you talk to non baseball fans, they know about the luckiest man speech, and like that's like the incredible like like. You're trying to find a metric to compare these two incredible baseball movies. And everyone knows the natural music. 
like everyone knows like oh this is when like the uplifting sports thing happens but everyone also knows the luckiest man and how much of that is from the movie as opposed to real life i mean yeah it is really the movie becoming the real life event there uh (laughs) and that makes it very difficult to determine a winner between these two uh, because they are both so well-written, so well-acted, and so much just a part of the culture, so much a part of the zeitgeist. Uh, Absolutely. And that's kind of what we came down to in the last one, is what, what is part of the zeitgeist more? And these two, they're they're very much embedded. Yeah, it's... I mean, I can think of a dozen examples of times where you know, the natural music has been used for dramatic or comedic purposes. I mean, like, like the Lou Gehrig disease, like that's like, it's embedded in everyday life because people still talk about either Lou Gehrig's disease or the iron horse streak. Like even like Lou Gehrig, like he's even still in like popular discourse just as oh he was the good yankee like he was like he was like the nice guy yankee like for whatever that may may mean like it's it's hard to yeah i mean like zeitgeist wise they're both like a a thumbs up yeah and i'd say let's bring it down to the actor's performance which lead actor really captured that role better but damn it i think we're tied again robert redford was (laughs) Roy Hobbs, and again, we're looking at it, and he was Lou Gehrig. Yeah, you look at, like, you ask anyone, oh, do you know any Robert Redford movies? First, they'll say, oh, he was the Sundance Kid. It's like, have you actually seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Then they'll say, no, shut up. (laughs) But he was natural, right? I don't think anybody's actually seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Have you now? I, I have a great movie. My favorite part is where it, it, it ended up just being like Newman and Redford just shooting the shit in cowboy outfits. At one point, Redford looks at Newman and says, I'm not jumping. Why can't you jump? I can't swim. And then Newman just laughs at him for an uninterrupted minute. And then they jump. <laughs> that's great. And yeah, like that's the thing. Like, of all of Redford's movie performances, like, like the natural, like that's like the most iconic for Gary Cooper though, doing like, it's the same thing. I don't know any other Gary Cooper movies. I mean, I could not tell you off the top of my head, but again, he's a movie star from the thirties and forties. Yes. So like we're dealing with different generational things. Like I'll pull up, like, yeah, Gary Cooper won two, two Academy best Awards. Actors. Holy crap! Yeah, and then an yeah, honorary. Like this guy was no pushover. Like no. he was in some of like the iconic movies. Like yeah, he was in For Whom the Bell Tolls. He did a Farewell to Arms. He did. Oh my God, he did a lot of. Mr. Deeds goes to town. High noon, like. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, this guy's so... Yeah, like, you're putting up... Like, this is an all-star slugfest between two of the greats in every sense of the word. Like... 
Well, this is what we kind of figured was going to happen when we got to the Elite Eight, is that it was going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult to differentiate between any two movies. Do we go, do we go beyond the two leads and look at the supporting elements of each movie... I mean, I think that's kind of what we're forced to do here, is look beyond the leads, because the leads are, it's one and one, it, they are so close together in these two movies. And, yeah, I mean, so just going beyond off of them, like, in the natural, like, you have, like, otherworldly performances from Duvall and Glenn Close, even Kim Basinger, like, plays her role to a T. That's, like, that is very true. And then you look, like, even, like, you look at the other players on the New York Knights. I mean, like, like, Wilford Brimley is great as the manager. You have, like, the little bat boy kid who gives him the Savoy special at the end. Like, like, you have, like, the guys who are, like, giving him grief for being an old man or an old Jesus, I suppose. Like, it's a, it's a complete movie. Even Slimer Sloan on the train, like, it's like, you can't strike me out, see? <laughs> yeah, but, oh, wow, okay. Reading the Wikipedia article about Pride of the Yankees, there is no known <laughs> intact film of Gehrig's actual speech at Yankee Stadium on Lou Gehrig Day. There is a oh, fuck. there is a small portion of newsreel footage which incorporates the beginning and the end of his remarks, and it's all that survives. The movie incorporates so, so the speech was not reproduced verbatim, and the script condensed and reorganized the actual spontaneous and unprepared remarks. It moved the actual luckiest man line from the beginning to the end for heightened dramatic effect but the message remained essentially unchanged. When you think of the film speech, when you think of the speech, you think of the film speech, because that's all that exists. Okay, and the fact that it's within years of the event actually happening, and that is insane. Nominated I mean, for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress. Wow, this movie was something. I mean, and the fact that, like, even now, it's like, yeah, everyone knows the luckiest man speech. It really happened. It didn't. It sort of did. It technically actually did. He did say that just at the beginning of his remarks. Then he probably went on to talk about the war effort. Uh, oh, they actually have a transcript of the speech. No, he talks about the people at the stadium. He talks about being a teammate. He talks about having a lot to live for. He does not talk about the war effort. That was a joke. <laughs> ah, fair enough. He, but for all we know, he might have. I mean, he was Lou freaking Gehrig. Yeah, he was like an American hero. <laughs> yeah, he was. I think, having now yeah. realized that the Gary Cooper speech, illusion. the Gary Cooper speech is the speech because there was no other version of the speech. <laughs> It's, it's, it's gone incredible. full Mandela effect. <laughs> we now have a winner? I, I think we do, just because of the fact that a core tenet of baseball history was actually a Gary Cooper movie. 
yeah, wow. And when you think about it that way, wow. And like for, and that, and it's crazy that that breaks the mold of, you know, great baseball movies. Like both of these are great baseball movies. There's, there's no denying that. But the fact that one of them has become so embedded in pop culture, it, it takes the place of a historical event that is integral to the story of baseball and slash America. Yeah. Insane. So uh, there you have it. Lou Gehrig is bigger than Jesus. And Espo scores on the rebound. Different sport. I am sorry. Yeah. Still, that is it. Like you said, it takes the place of an actual historical event. I mean, part of that is because it was in the absence of recording of the actual historical event. But still, wow, that is... It's, so- like if, it's like if we didn't have Exodus and all we had was Charlton Heston. Yeah, that is essentially what it is like. Uh, and think about it, when you picture Moses, you picture Charlton Heston, don't you? That, yeah, because it's Charlton frickin' Heston. <laughs> I mean, aside from when he went crazy later in life and went to become a gun nut. He thought the damn dirty apes were going to take the gun from his cold, dead hands. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. We were only 35 minutes into this episode. Do we push for another round, or do we make this a short episode? That in itself is a tough debate. You know what? I say we push ahead. I say we knock another one out. Because... We somehow cracked the code <laughs> of the lasting impact. And again, just to make it definitive, the natural, incredible baseball movie, one that many thought was going to take it all, bows out to real life recreated. So Pride of the Yankees is our second arrival in the final four. Okay, so now here comes a big one. We have the first Costner entry into the Elite Eight, which is, of course, Field of Dreams, against There's No Crying in Baseball, A League of Their Own. (sighs) There will be tears. How the hell? There will be tears. I mean, both of these movies inspire such deep and incredible emotion, like... Like, Gina Davis and her sister, like, you just, like, your heart breaks for that relationship. Like, it's it's one of, like, it's one of the, like, the core tenets of the movie is that, like, these two, they, like, they have each other. And then you look at, you look across the aisle, it's Kevin Costner and his ghost dad. Like, he's trying to reclaim that relationship. And... At the core of both is baseball. Yeah. Both Let's start crying right now because I can't go any further. <laughs> I know. Well, both of them are about how baseball and family are so intertwined, and that's at their core. Uh, and then Fields of Dreams is about how baseball is a metaphor for America, whereas League of Their Own is about how baseball is a salve for America. It's about how in the war... And that's also another thing. It's very much a war film. It's a home front film, but it's a war film. It's about how during World War II, they needed baseball so badly to help maintain America's morale during the war 
that they had the Women's League, and the Women's League was so popular because there was such a need for baseball. And it's crazy, the parallels, like, obviously war is different than a pandemic, but, like, we know how much we've been clamoring for professional sports. That was the reality, like, 75 years ago. Like, even with all of this horrible stuff going on, people needed something to, you know, hold on to, and baseball was it. Like, it's crazy how, like, significant, like, these movies are for the sport of baseball. Like, you could, like, you could be, you know, a, you know, a, a lapsed baseball fan and see these movies and still feel that, that, like, like, that, like, the, that heartbeat of, oh my God, this is, like, this is baseball. Like, it, it really plays on your emotions and your fandom. <laughs> I like that terminology, a lapsed fan, as if it's a religion, because there is a certain religious element to baseball. Uh, and both of these really do play on that, where it's there's the following, there's the love for the game at that deep, deep level. Uh, and then Field of Dreams takes that to a whole other level, where it is baseball as religion, essentially, where there is literally the magic of baseball, uh, that we get to find with uh, James Earl Jones and Moonlight Graham and the Black Sox, of course. But with... And sorry, we go talking, on. Sorry, we were talking about the Costner verse earlier. When, when Susan Sarandon mentions, I believe in the Church of Baseball, you have to believe that that foundational story is filled with dreams. Oh, yeah, of course. That's, that's chapter one. That's the genesis of the Church of Baseball. And it's crazy, like, I mean, you look at both movies, and, like, in that, like, one stretch in the late 80s, early 90s, two of the all-time sports movies come out, and there hasn't been anything that reaches their emotional level since. Yeah, I mean, both of them are just emotional gut punches to watch them, and, uh, again... We're, we've set ourselves up for a really hard round, and I don't think there's any easy rounds from here on out. But, oh, absolutely. So, again, let's go to our tests. Which one has stuck in the zeitgeist? The fact that everyone says there's no crying in baseball and doesn't understand what it means, that's a huge tell. Yeah, I think that's a massive tell. Uh, and, of course... I don't think there is such a line from Field of Dreams. Maybe that maybe if you build it he will come, but I think that's used far less often and far less inappropriately. There's no crying in baseball is thrown around like all the time. And believe me, I've seen, you know, if you build it will pharmaceutical companies come? Like, I've seen it repurposed and reused for every hackneyed cliche to the point that anytime I see it, I, like, I, I have to go watch the James Earl Jones speech to make me feel better about myself. Like, if you build it, they will come, he will come. Like, it's like, been used so much to the point that we forget that it's used so much. Huh, that's an interesting take on it. And it's true, it is used a lot. 
Uh, so they've both entered the zeitgeist, especially with their, even if it's just for that one line from each of them. Uh, so let's look at casting. Uh, they're both A pluses. Yeah, both impeccable. I mean, this may be the only time where we can say, wow, Madonna was great in that movie. Uh, yeah, literally the only time you can ever say Madonna was great in that movie. Uh, but that even speaks to something where the director was, Penny Marshall was able to get that kind of performance out of Madonna. Also, Penny Marshall, one of the all-time greats. Yeah, this, this movie was just star upon star upon star upon star. And again, Phil Alden Robinson, I mean, he managed to make Ray Liotta likable. Yeah, Ray Liotta likable, that is something else. Although my favorite scene was, <laughs> like, it's towards the end where uh, Ray Liotta is like, playing with the other ghosts. He's like, you know, we were going to, well, Ty Cobb wanted to play, but we couldn't stand the son of a bitch when he was alive, so we didn't invite him. <laughs> and he does the Ray Liotta laugh. Just the Ray Liotta like, laugh right there. Yeah, that was great. Um, Burt Lancaster is Moonlight Graham. How crazy is that? Burt freaking Lancaster. Yeah, but the John Lovitz in League of Their Own showing up as the talent scout, and he's in the movie for all the five minutes, and everybody remembers him. Because he's John Lovitz, America's greatest living actor and Gary Bettman impersonator. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I mean, John, it, it was the perfect amount of John Lovitz, too. And, yeah, like... You go apples for apples. I mean, like, James Earl Jones as J.D. Salinger, even though they can't name him J.D. Salinger. But imagine Holden Caulfield written by Darth Vader. Just think about that for a second. He'd be a lot less whiny and annoying if he was actually written by Darth Vader. I find your lack of phonies disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But then, of course, you've got the manager of the team, played by Tom Hanks. How do we go this deep into the Field of Dreams conversation without without saying the words Tom Hanks? That's how great of a movie it was. Or Tom Hanks can be saved as a ace in the hole. Yeah, I mean, you didn't need to have Tom Hanks in A League of Their Own, but the fact that you have Tom Hanks in A League of Their Own as the male lead, ostensibly, and... He's he's just this ace in the hole in our debate. It's ridiculous how deep this cast is. And that's the thing. The movie doesn't necessarily need a male lead because of all the like outstanding female characters, which in itself is rare for sports movies. Yeah, I'd say it's one of a kind in that... Well, not quite one of a kind. There are other female-led sports movies, but it's one of a kind in the baseball world. And it's very rare. And it's also, like, peak Gina Davis, Gina Davis. Oh, yeah. Peak Gina Davis. This is arguably her best movie. Because we all forget about the pirate movie. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Let's let's choose to forget about that one. Yeah. Again, cast for cast, like... You're at loggerheads. Like, Amy Madigan was great as Annie Kinsella. Like, you, you can't discount that. So, where do we go from here? 
We've gone ca we've gone to the zeitgeist. We've gone to the cast. What about their lasting impacts? I think the fact that they've actually carved out a frigging cornfield in Iowa. <laughs> that I is mean, that is true. They've carved out a cornfield in Iowa and intended to play a major league baseball game there this year. And the fact that the expression is this heaven no it's Iowa. That's I've still heard people say that, and that's the only thing they know about Iowa. It's not heaven. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it is Iowa. I, I wouldn't imagine heaven to look like Iowa. And yet, that movie shows it could be. It could be. It could be. Like, it's crazy. I mean, like, you have one movie that's like, based on, like, a real historical event, and then you have what may be the foundational core of baseball movies. I mean, A League of Their Own is preserved in the National Film Registry. It's culturally... So Field of Dreams, is it? I think so. I think so, yeah. Uh, it helped put them into... It helped put them into the Hall of Fame. Literally, yeah. Yep, Library of Congress for both of them. Yeah, oh my goodness. Oh, there is... Yeah, this is not going to be easy because... I mean, even if we go by rewatch it by the rewatchable factor, I'd sit down and watch both of these. Yeah, double feature. I mean, and we look even in the Costner-verse... Is this the better Costner baseball movie? Now you're playing it against itself. I don't know if it's the better Costner movie, but that's not even the question we're asking right now. We're asking... No, that's just me going on the tangent to avoid facing reality. We're asking, is it better than A League of Their Own? And I don't know if I can say yes to that, but I don't know if I can say yes to Is a League of Their Own better than Field of Dreams, either. We ultimately have to find something, which... Well, I mean, it's... It's crazy to think that, like, these two foundational baseball movies, like... I would say what puts A League of Their Own over the top is how unique it is. How many other movies do you see that are about women's professional sports uh, that feature a female-led cast that pass the Bechdel test uh, that are able to impart such an awesome message with their movie? It's not to take anything away from Field of Dreams, which I still hold up as a personal favorite, but... A League of Their Own is just so different from every other movie we have here. I think that's kind of what puts it over the top. That's what moves it on. I would counter with how many films, period, have the type of relationship drama that culminates in the ultimate, you know, like, stunner at the end. Because the first time you see this movie, you think the entire run of the film 
he, in If You Build It, He Will Come, is Shoeless Joe Jackson. Oh, he's just trying to write a baseball wrong. At the end of the movie, when Kevin Costner's dad shows up, and you realize the whole time this wasn't about baseball. This was about something deeper than that. This was about him trying to have one last game of catch with his dad, both literally and metaphorically. I don't know many other like dramatic movies that have that type of relationship. And especially for the time where sports movies were still by and large sports movies, whereas this becomes a movie. Oh, you're right. I mean, we're really at loggerheads here. I really and again, that's no disservice to a league of their own, which is incredible a movie in its own right and outright as a movie. I really don't know which one to pick. I really don't. <laughs> what do we do? Flip a coin at this point? <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what we do. Maybe it comes. Maybe it comes down to just random chance because they're so evenly matched. This has definitely been the hardest matchup we've ever faced in this bracket. And yeah, like there's not much that separates the two of them. No, there really isn't. Uh, I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do. These are two phenomenal movies. Like, when I say baseball movie, what's the first movie you name? I mean, I name Field of Dreams, but that's because it is my favorite movie of all time. But it's not the question of what's my favorite movie. It's the question of what's objectively the best. But it's my favorite sports movie, too. And I don't know if the question is, is, is is it getting past because it's our favorite or is it or it's because past- it's better? Yeah. I think, very objectively speaking, trying to step back from the emotion involved, that A League of Their Own is a little bit better as a sport movie. By that metric, I would have to agree. So, I think... That is... Tough one, man. I am hurting so bad to have to say that Field of Dreams loses. But I think if we're going to try and be incredibly objective here, that's the objective stance I have to take. Since when were we we objective in this? Because (laughs) there's no other way to do this one. There's no other way for us to take this to take this one down otherwise this podcast would never end that is true and now we're going from a short episode to a long one yeah so are we gonna say it are we gonna say that field of dreams unfortunately is upset and it's out in the elite eight but it loses to a more than worthy movie in a league of their own because yeah like, in the closest battle in this week in Blurnsball history, a league of their own. That, it takes it. And that sets up our first Final Four matchup. We've got a league of their own against Pride of the Yankees. And I thought we were dealing with emotions now. <laughs> yeah, just wait. Okay. And then so- we still have one more foundational matchup. I think, let's, let's go to this. 
the num- one of the number one seeds is out. Yeah, there this we go. It's now anyone's bracket. This is open up to anybody. I did not think we were going to have a number one out this early. This is anybody's game here. And just shows that our bracketology, did we underrank a league of their own at number three? I mean, possibly. I mean, <laughs> it's possible, did- but... But look at who number two was on that side of the bracket. The natural. So were we going to rank a league of their own over the natural? But the natural also lost. So To pride of the Yankees, which we put at number four because of Lou Gehrig uh, Gematria. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is, this is rough. I don't, know then, if, I don't know if it's bracketology's failing or it's just we're coming around on evaluating films. No, it's bracketology's fault. Let's not let's not accept blame or credit for any of this. Okay, then it's bracketology's fault. So yeah. <laughs> let's let's go do something fun. Let's talk about our classic games of the week. Yeah, I think we could use a real life palate cleanser after all of that. Like, whoa! All right, what do you got for this week? <laughs> okay, so for this week, I've got Game 3 of the 2015 ALCS, Jays uh, versus Royals. This is a fun one. It was Election Night 2015 in Canada. So on the out-of-town scoreboards, rather than showing other scores, which there are none, they're showing election results. The Jays have just <laughs> lost the first two in heartbreaking fashion in Kansas City. This is a must-win game. Johnny Cueto's on the mound for the Royals, and he gets absolutely rocked. Uh, Jays fans have caught on to the fact that he is easily taunted. The stadium is just lit (laughs) up. Cueto, Cueto, the whole night. He's out in like the third inning, uh, and the Jays win big. That is an excellent, excellent pick. And... Yeah, I mean, like, you forget how many times that, you know, Cueto, like, gets rattled in the postseason. And it's really, like, something exceptional. And the game I'm going to have to go for, though, is game two of the 2018 ALCS Red Sox-Astros. Knowing what we know now that the Astros are baseball's greatest villains, and the Red Sox, who aren't in the top three of baseball villains, quiet you. They're not in no guilty scent. They are not in no guilty scent. The Red Sox rallied that game. Benintendi makes a game-saving, game-ending diving catch in one of the great defensive plays in Red Sox playoff history. Like... And now knowing, especially now that the Astros are the ultimate villains in baseball. Well, aside from the Yankees, because the Yankees are perpetually the great villains. And the Marlins because of Derek Jeter. Yes, well, that that just is because they have the Yankee stank on them. Yes. And I just remember, like, that entire game was pins and needles. Like, it's the defending you know, World Series champions against my favorite team and just, like, watching every single play with, like, clenched fists. I think I broke a few glasses that night. And that diving catch at the end, I remember just losing my shit, like, just going crazy. Like, that's a momentum-changing catch. And, like, 
that was a fun game to watch, and especially now with the added context of the Astros being evil. Yeah. Uh, so, Futurama Picks of the Week. You want to go first this time? I really hope we haven't picked this one already, but I'm going with That's Lobstertainment. No, we have not picked this one. That's a great episode, too. Whoop, 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 whoop. Uncle Zoid. <laughs> when Zoidberg wants to make something of himself, and, oh, man, just he goes to old Hollywood to meet his washed-up director uncle, and he's looking at his rich doctor nephew, and, oh, man, they, they make the movie with Calculon about the president, and I want to see some pies in the background. <laughs> We wasted all our uh, we wasted all of our editing budget on pies, so it premieres next Thursday. But you won this Golden Globe. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, the plot makes perfect sense. Wink, wink. Fender, you said the vink, vink out loud. No, I didn't. Raise his middle finger. Oh, <laughs> uh, just more, it's it just sends up Hollywood so well. It makes Calculon look like a jerk, and also. The more decapodians, the better. And the winner. <laughs> and the winner. Instead of any of the people that I mentioned, Harold Zoid. Bikini party summer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, okay. my God. Such a good episode. So I picked the episode Time Keeps on Slipping. So uh, Earth is challenged by the Globetrotter homeworld to a game of basketball. The professor accepts their challenge and builds a team of mutant atomic supermen, but the particles <laughs> he used in order to age the mutant atomic super babies into mutant atomic supermen have caused time to come unhinged, and they keep jumping forward in time. And then, the, of course, the Globetrotters save it because, you know, they're mathematical geniuses. Of course, from Globetrotter University. I mean, that's one of the great episodes also with Marv Albert, like, actually doing the commentary for the game. Yeah. Everyone, it appears these mutant supermen are shooting from beyond the arc. Everyone in this room as of this moment is an honorary Globetrotter. Did I miss it? Yes, you missed it, Bender. Oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, this episode was written in our own ink. <laughs> yeah. So... I think that does it for this week. It's an extra long episode, but the trade-off is you got two movie showdowns that emotionally wrecked us. I'm going to go watch four movies now. Yep, and I'm going to go cry in a corner. <laughs> yeah, so just a reminder, you can follow us on the social medias. Uh, the podcast itself is at TWI Blurnsball. You can follow me personally. I'm at JMS Morris. And I'm at Benjamin K. Bloom, and man, that was another knockdown, drag-out episode. Like, I'm still a bit shook by what transpired. <laughs> so am I. So if you enjoyed our knockdown, drag-out episode, give us a five-star rating on whatever your podcast platform of choice is, because that way more people find out about us and uh, find out about all of our insanity. And can yell at us or applaud us. Either way, yeah. we accept both. We accept both. So, for all of us here at This Week in Blurns Ball, I'm Jacob Morris. I'm Benjamin Bloom. Thank you so much for joining us. Farewell from the world of tomorrow.